I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It thrills me to the tits that there's a 39-year-old mother of two who's slightly overweight talking about Marxism and feminism that teenage girls are getting as excited about as a boy band. Yes, hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Varvet International with me, Christopher Triumph. Today's guest is one of England's most well-known and funniest writers with no less than three columns a week in The Times and her book How to Be a Woman from 2012 is a funny, honest and very inclusive piece on feminism that has sold hundreds of thousands of copies around the world. Kathleen Moran is this week's guest on Varvet International, which by the way, is sponsored by Stutterheim Raincoats, those wonderful, high-quality, hand-sewn garments that look good on almost any thinkable autumn occasions. Order your raincoat from wherever you are in the world, as shipping is free, and you do that at stutterheim.com. That's stutterheim.com. And thank you, Stutterheim. Now, back to Kathleen Moran. She's one of the most sparkling people I've ever met. Any direction I pointed, she had something great and brilliant to say about it. To put her on the map for those of you who aren't already familiar with her, I can tell you that she was born in 1975. She's the oldest of eight siblings. Yes, we'll get to that. She grew up in Wolverhampton, which is a city about smack in the middle of England with a quarter of a million inhabitants. And she started writing really early on. She had her first job at a music magazine at the age of 16, and by that time she had already published her first novel. And since then, she has worked her way up to being one of the most influential writers in Britain, known for brutal honesty and brilliant humor. And the reason that I got this interview was perhaps my reputation of wits and charm, or the fact that her fourth book, or second novel if you will, How to Build a Girl just came out. We met in her wonderful home in London and now she wants to start a revolution. So let's get started then. Ladies and gentlemen, Kathleen Moran. All right, I would like you to be a little bit closer to the microphone. Yes, I can do that. I also brought these, not from Sweden though. Oh, There's lovely. One you lovely with boy. Cinnamon, no, that's cardamom, right? Yeah, cinnamon, no cinnamon, yeah. And this is uh, chocolate. Do you want some? You've got your coffee, come and have some. Maybe have we some should share. Share them, yeah. yeah. That would be perfect. That's lovely, thank you, And I've darling. been like, I've been off, what do you call it? Carbohydrates? Yes, <laughs> and gluten. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I've been off that for like a month. So Robert, this is my... Uh, your treat. Yes, and also my... Uh, Downfall. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm, you're oh. relapsing now. Oh, thank this you. This is great. My relapse. Yeah. Fag coffee. Gluten. Mm. You animal. <laughs> That's really nice. Thank you. How are you? Very hungover. I went out last night. I've been out for two nights on the trot. I'm a load of friends. I went out last night with the writer Simon Rich, who's fantastic, and um, Jesse Armstrong, who writes Veep and The Thick of It and Peep mm-hmm. Show. And we got quite drunk and then bumped into a load of other people, including Dan Stevens, who used to be Cousin Matthew in Downton, and the comedian Jack Whitehall. And we ended up back at his flat at four o'clock in the morning drinking wine and discussing the situation in Palestine and Israel. <laughs> Yes, you do. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think we solved it. I think we. I think we. But, but we've literally. The good news is, <laughs> we're going to call the United Nations tomorrow, and tell them that we've sorted out the whole thing. We've come up with a solution, so it's all good. That's perfect. Mm. But you don't want to tell us now. I'll tell you anything you want, darling. Okay. So, what are the rules here? No swearing. You can swear as much as you want. Can I swear my fucking head off? Is that yes, it? of course. <laughs> Instead of a traditional soundcheck, I don't know why in Sweden we ask our guests. What they had for breakfast. For breakfast, yes. You to, do which that. My, to which my reply is always, like everybody, spunk and a cigarette. Okay. What's spunk? Sperm. Ah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> of course. It always gets the interview going well. Yeah, but <laughs> well. I don't uh, normally do that. I ask instead my guests uh, to describe uh, the setting. Of where, where we are. are we? We are currently in my garden and it's fitting that you are here because I spent all my Swedish royalties on getting this garden done by a garden designer. And I'd like to say that it's because I love nature and I love horticulture, but it's actually because I wanted somewhere to smoke outside. So this we're, we're sitting in a garden that cost £50,000 and is designed for me to sit and have a cigarette. And then I gave up smoking, so who's the bigger fool? <laughs> but it's a wonderful garden. Thank you very much. It's purple. We've got purple curvy walls that uh, that undulate up and down. It's supposed to look sort of Alice in Wonderlandy. The idea is it's supposed to look slightly surreal. It's it, it, it's a garden to aid drinking and partying. Have you been living here long? Yeah, we've been living here ten years now. All right. And since I gave up drugs and foreign travel, I spend all my money on triple glazing and uh, and and rare plants. So um, we, we're sitting in the in the midst of my uh, of my extravagance. What can you tell me about the neighbourhood? We are in Crouch End, which is the kind of noncy. It's a North London liberal bastion with very poor public transport connections. So as a consequence, this is where all the actors and writers live because they don't have to commute into town every day. The last three Doctor Whos have lived here. Actor James McAvoy lives three doors down. And uh, it's always very pleasant near Christmas when it starts snowing to see him walking down the street carrying parcels because when he was playing Mr Tumnus in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that's exactly what he looks like in the film. And I can just let them make my children and look out the window and go, look, there's Mr Tumnus walking down the street. And I, in some way, they think that I have made that happen. Fantastic. And you have the biggest house on the street. I guess it used to be two houses, right? Um, I think it was flats at one point. But yes, no, we do have the we have the, the biggest house on the street, something which makes me very proud. Uh, coming from, I come from pikey welfare stock in Wolverhampton and uh, I've made every penny myself so it delights my working class heart to be able to open my door and tell people that I have the biggest house on the street. I was curious about that because I guess it's safe to say that you have done what we in Sweden call a, a travel of classes. Yes, travel classes. Well, it's interesting. I keep getting asked if I... People go, well, you must be middle class now. First of all, because I now have this accent, this kind of sort of classic London media accent. I don't talk like I used to in Wolverhampton when I was just talking like this, and I'd be like, to be fair, I lost that accent when I moved down to London at the age of 18 because no one understood what I was talking about, and I 
assumed this standard English accent. But secondly, the idea that you can change classes, I think, is a nonsense because if you if you say that I am now middle class because I'm successful and I've earned earned money, that means that you basically think that to be working class is exactly the same as being middle class, but that you failed, you don't have any money, and you're not successful. And that's an incredibly hurtful and prejudicial statement to say about the working classes. There's, I think there's a distinct difference between working class culture and middle class culture. And the next book that I'm working on at the moment, I, I want to explain that and, and show the difference between between the two the, the two classes. I mean, you know, very briefly, you can tell someone who's working class when they make their money, they bring people with them. They'll bring their family with them. They'll bring their friends with them. They'll pay for everything. They usually host extravagantly. They tend to spunk their money quite quickly. They're aware of how lucky they are. They tend to live for the moment. It's a kind of Falstaffian kind of Rabelaisian kind of, you know, enjoying of spending the money. And more specifically, culturally, if you look at the reason why people talk about the 1960s as being the greatest decade ever, the most creative, that's because it was the first decade that the working classes fully came on stream in this country because we had copyright laws that meant that people could earn money from their art. Previously, if you were working class and an artist, you would either have to get a rich patron who would pay you to paint for him or, or make songs, or you'd starve to death in an attic. And and so with the introduction of the copyright laws were amazing for the working classes. And then, you know, by the time the 1960s came along, we'd had the NHS, we'd had free education, the working classes were going to university, they're going to art colleges. And that's why all these amazing bands are formed. That's why you get the Beatles. That's why you get playwrights like Joe Wharton. That's why you get all these working class actors like Michael Caine and Anthony Hopkins. And that's why that decade is so exciting and vital, because the same creativity and drive that fueled the Industrial Revolution when the working classes were fueling the Industrial Revolution, and it was their inventions that were changing this country, was suddenly turned into art and culture and made the 1960s incredible so but no one ever talks about that you, you know to talk about working class culture specifically people don't think that it exists so that's my next job <laughs> is to describe that I think I've never met anyone before that talks so fast. I'm really sorry. I'm trying to talk as slowly as I can. If I drink, oh, I, you oh, just basically hear a very high-pitched sound, which would be all of my words merging into one, just going, Meep! I actually tried to uh, watch um, Raised by Wolves without subtitles. Yes. That was quite a task for a Swede. Yes, we have. We're making the series now. It's, shoot, it's literally shooting at the moment. I'm going up next week on to set our sitcom. And... Um, Yeah, I mean, again, the actors are speaking slower than me and my sister do, kind of. We've sort of, we've tried to get everyone... I mean, it comes from, it's coming from a big family. You know, I'm the eldest of eight children, and if you've got eight people, eight children around a table, the only way that you're going to get your point across is to talk really fast. You can tell people who come from big families, they talk very fast, because they have to get their sentences in in half the time as everyone else, and also they eat very fast. If you go out to dinner with someone who can just basically inhale a sausage in, in one mouthful, then you know that they've come from a big family. Because if you're from a big family and you're sitting around a table and you don't eat your food in, you know, less than a minute someone will just lean across and go do you not want that sausage then and just take it and eat it how does it work to be rich here in the uk or in england Well, I mean, in London, it's necessary. You know, these days, it wasn't... When I moved down here, I moved down here on my 18th birthday, and I uh, earned £200 a week, which wasn't that much, but that was enough to rent a house here and buy as much cheap lager and fags as my heart desired and hair dye, cheap red hair dye. These days, you can't... London's changed enormously since since the Russian and the Chinese and sort of Middle Eastern money came into the country and people are sort of buying houses just as investments. London has sort of changed to become quite gross, really. The, the sort of the inventiveness... 
basically you need to have space to invent it's necessary for culture to have space you need to be able to find a cheap warehouse you need to be able to find a building and, and you know make a club there invite people over that's how things happen and it's the same thing that women need culturally women need a space that sort of most of my feminism is based around providing women with a space where they can do things because that's all we need then we can get on with it and there's no space left in london now it's it's impossible to move down here basically about five years ago young people stopped moving to this city it's almost as if gates were put up uh, financial gates because you can't afford to live here now if you're young and so this the, the the age of the city is gradually becoming older and older and it's becoming less and less creative and it really saddens me because I, I love i believe in london london raised me i had maps of london on my wall as a child and i kind of learned all the roads before i moved down here and i, I love london like it's part of me and part of my family but um over the last five years it's become it's it's, it's not it's the same thing you see when you go to new york's sort or of manhattan it's becoming this kind of playground for um for very rich people very rich uncultured people but you know i'm sure there'll be a worldwide banking crash at some point and we'll go back to <laughs> people being able to afford to live here again do you get asked how much money do you make and so forth british people don't do that no no you don't no no no, no. british people not do that and also kind of i i don't look rich when i go out because i i have very cheap tastes i have the tastes of a uh, of a of a bar woman from the 1950s i just like a fake leopard skin coat and i back comb my hair very big and i wear five pound rimmel eyeliner i i try i've tried God knows I've tried to spend my money on expensive things that ladies are supposed to like. I've tried buying really expensive handbags and really expensive shoes, but I, I just look like I stole them. Some people can wear expensive things and I can't. I always look like I stole it off a, an older and nicer lady and I'm running away down the street. So so I now, wear, I now use the same school satchel that my children use as my handbag and uh, I wear Doc Martin shoes and uh, I spend all my money on gin instead. Really? Yeah, pretty much. I, I I spunk my money. I'm I'm very lucky. I've got a very um a very cautious husband who doesn't like to spend money, so he's my breaking system. But it's it's part of why I work so hard because if I'm spending the money, then I have to earn more, and that's just a very good way of. All writers are basically looking for a reason not to write. You talk to any writer, and they're all just trying to you know they would rather clean the entire house from top to bottom, or embark on an affair, or like you know go on a sponsored walk to Scotland than actually sit down and fucking write something. So everyone's got to have their motivation for writing and mine is that as soon as i earn my money i spend it <laughs> not on stupid things like yeah, i give i give i give so much of it away uh, you know I, i i throw big parties and i buy very expensive double glazing i don't know if you get this question anymore but how would you reply to it if you were asked who are you Blimey, that's a bit of a big one with a hangover. I've got a pounding hangover. I've been on the piss for two days. Who am I? Well, my biog states that I'm a very sexual humanitarian. So that's the key things. I love the concept of revolution and change. Kind of as I was, as I was growing up, the idea that there are certain people who can change things. And again, coming from a working class background, and particularly sort of the legacy of the of the Thatcher years was to make the working classes believe that they couldn't change things. In all the miners' strikes and the unionisation, they were crushed. When we marched against Iraq, we still went to war in Iraq. So there's this sort of growing cultural belief that people can't change things. And I want to show that they can because I know my life was changed by certain people and certain things. For instance, the big revelation that I had was when I had my first daughter. I had a very difficult birth. And I undoubtedly would have died if it wasn't for the invention of the NHS, for the invention of caesarean sections and anaesthetic and the aftercare that I received. And there are specific people who invented those drugs and invented that NHS system that saved me. And that was the big revelation I had while I was looking at my daughter. What is NHS? NHS, that's um, that's our free well uh, medical system here. Oh, that's right. the, the okay. hospitals. Everything is free at the point of service. So, so I would have died without free medical care and you know all these revolutions. And so I was like, no, every, you know the, the the political narrative that we're told in this country is not true. People can change things and you know you, you aspire to change big things but I'll you know I'll take changing small things and that was why I loved writing that book about feminism and 
Whenever I go out, I get stopped five or ten times just walking down a street by women who just went, I didn't know I was a feminist until I read your book and now I am. And I get stopped by men who say that. Last night, part of the reason why I'm so hungover is I was out with um, the actor Dan Stevens, who was in Downton, and he wrote one of the first pieces when How to Be a Woman came out, explaining why it had made him realise that he was a male feminist and why he was giving it to all of his all of his male friends. And that was such a huge deal. That kind of that changed the perception of the book, because I think often men felt that they couldn't talk about feminism. There's a there's you know there's a group of angry feminists who will go, men can't be feminists, and we shut men out of the debate. But feminism can't happen in isolation. We, you know, if you're talking about the equality of people. I mean, basically, the, 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 whole, the, the whole idea of why equality is brilliant and it's not just feminism, but, you know, for people of colour and of different religions and different sexualities and different, you know, physical ability is that we're a tiny planet with a lot of problems. And if you look at a map of the world and the most troubled countries, the ones with the highest infant mortality rates and the greatest poverty and the most instances of war, they're usually the most unequal countries. And that's because the greatest resource that any country has isn't gold or oil or uranium, it's brains. And so any country that's unequal and doesn't allow its women or its gay people to go to parliament or to become scientists or doctors or teachers is a stupider country and they will have bigger problems. So it's in the interest of all of us to promote the ideas of equality. You know, we will all benefit from it. You know, I pity the sexist racist who's sitting there while some black woman is coming up with the cure for cancer, you know, because he's going to need that drug, you know, kind of, you know, that's, you know, it's the, the, the fundamental stupidity of believing that people are unequal. So that's who you are. A sexual revolutionary, yes. Because the revolution should be fun. That was the other big lie that we were told. The whole idea about being political and wanting to change things. We've been told that that's boring. You know, kind of like, oh God, here you come with your issues talking about stuff. But, you know, you go back 100 years, 2,000 years, you read all the way through history and people who are talking about politics and change are the exciting people. This is, why wouldn't you be excited about the world changing and becoming better? And I just want everyone to remember the thrill of feeling that you can change the world and anyone can. Some 13-year-old girl who's writing a blog about feminism in her school is changing the world in a tiny way and that's a thrilling thing to be reminded of. That's my job is to remind people that we can change things. That and backcombing my hair and making it as big as possible. Those are my two <laughs> primary functions. Are you friends with the Russell Brand? I've met him a couple of times. We talk to each other on Twitter, yeah. Because you sort of seem to be on the same agenda in ways. Yes. No, no, well, he, he's got a similar background to me. He's working class and self-taught and talks very fast and uses a lot of big words and makes his hair big and uh, uses a lot of Victorian words. And I do that too. I, I, I differ from Russell in that he's on a spiritual quest. What Russell does is explain why people aren't political. And his ultimate conclusion was that we shouldn't vote and we shouldn't believe in politics, that we should... Politics has become corrupt and therefore we should ignore it and reject it. Whereas my reading of that is politics is corrupt. That's why we need to go in there and change it. You know, it, it, we need people like Russell to actually stand for Parliament. The, the option is not to opt out because you can't opt out because then you leave those people with the power. Everything stays as it is. I don't think he quite realises yet that, um, that what he's saying is he's saying everything will stay the same. You have to go, no, I, I believe in myself. I can go in there and change that. On Varvet International, I tend to go way, way back. Mm -hmm. So what can you tell me about your birth? My mother was a hippie and she told me that when she was giving birth to me that she hallucinated that I was Ganesh, the elephant god, which when you're told that when you're six, you're like, thanks, well, you thought I was an elephant, that's great. And that was my subsequent weight problems solidified there in that moment. But she she, she told me that um, that she believed that I would become great and that I was there to change the world, which could go either way. You know, as a child, being told that your mother thinks that you're going to change the world could become a massive pain in the arse and a burden. But I cheerfully took that on board and went, yes, I reckon I can do that. Yeah. 
So, um, so I, I don't, I have no recollections of my birth. I no. imagine it probably chafed quite a lot, and I was probably quite unhappy for most of it. But, um, but then I, but then I was born, and then I was happy. It was in Brighton. Yes, it was in Brighton, and I was a breech birth. I came out um, feet first, which my mother said, uh, "You always make a, you always make an entrance," and uh, and so so, and I still now enter parties feet first often. <laughs> But you were raised in Wolverhampton. Yes, we were born in Brighton, which is a beautiful liberal seaside town, <coughs> full of hippies and beautiful architecture. And then my parents got a, a council house exchange; they could swap their flat in Brighton for a house in Wolverhampton, which is where my dad's parents were. And so we moved to one of the most depressed, uncultural towns in Britain. In Britain, Wolverhampton is a joke. Kind of, you know, the punchline to a joke would be, "Yeah, and we went on holiday. We went camping in Wolverhampton." Kind of like it's it's a byword for depressed ugly, cultureless wasteland. But we have the band Slade and we have the comedian Eric Idle from Monty Python and, you know, we, 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 we cling on to our icons. We're, we're, uh, the thing about the Midlands sense of humour, a friend of mine, the journalist Alexis Petridis, once said that uh, people from the Midlands are who people from Liverpool think they are. People from Liverpool think that they're kind of dry, cynical, witty, kind of down-to-earth people. But in fact, they're not. They're preening fools, as he said. It's the people from Wolverhampton who have that sense of humour. We're very dry. We don't take ourselves seriously at all. They're just that kind of like, oh, oh, it's happened again, kind of like we're very sort of uh, down-to-earth and resigned. So... It's a joke now with Wolverhampton. Yes. Was it was it like that back then as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah. no, it always was. I mean, Wolverhampton was an amazing town. And again, kind of it's sort of having this sense of, um, you realise, I mean, in London, nearly everyone I meet in the media or who's a writer or a journalist, they are middle class and they're from the south of the country and they went to public school and then they went to Cambridge or Oxford. And I didn't go to school, and I didn't go to university and I come from a different part of the country. So my understanding of what the country is like is very different to most of the people who are writing about this country. I lived in a city that at the turn of the century was a huge thriving industrial powerhouse we made bicycles we made locks you know our tinware we made sort of like things out of tin we were a very wealthy city we had the first traffic lights in the country we had the first tram system in the country and then the industrial decline happened and so I and then it was the 1980s and we had Thatcher we had the riots I was uptown when the riot happened in 1982 just a, a bunch of guys coming down the street screaming and my dad hiding me under his coat and just smelling his sweat and his fear and him just going now they won't touch us love but obviously he was worried that they would you know we were hiding from this riot so we were it was like growing up in the ruins of a city there was this awareness that things had been different that if I'd been there working class a hundred years ago my dad would have had a good job we would have lived in a city that you would have been proud of but we now lived in this ruined shell of a city with massive unemployment and this awful haunted looks on the faces of the parents and the older people who lived in the city they were ashamed of that city for their children they would tell them this was once a great place and they'd kind of be apologizing to us like sorry sorry we fucked it up but of course mm. it wasn't them who'd fucked it up it was the you know the political system of the time you were born in 75 yes. i was born in 74 it feels like england was black and white for a really really long time yes well i always think the point where color came was when the beatles came and recorded sergeant pepper like kind of in the documentary in my head of the of the you know of, of britain everything was in black and white and everyone was very sort of quiet and deferential to the upper classes and then the beatles played Sergeant. There's a brilliant story about when the Beatles finished Sergeant Pepper, they were in London recording at Abbey Road and they went over to Mama Cass from the Mama and Papa's house she was staying in town and they brought over the um, the tapes of the album and played it for the first time to Mama Cass and a couple of her mates and they were all getting drunk and stoned and they put the speakers out on the windowsill and played it out over the rooftops of Chelsea and at first people were opening their windows going, what is this? Turn it down! But then they all realised that it was the new Beatles album they recognised the voices, they knew that it was the Beatles and apparently they all, all you could see out of 
these windows were people hanging out of their windows as the sun came up, listening to Sgt Pepper for the first time. And when the album ended, they all applauded. And that's... You know, that's the the beauty of culture that even though technically you're being a massive menace and kind of playing your music really loudly at six o'clock in the morning, if you're the Beatles, everyone will applaud you at the end of that. And that's, you know, that was such a beautiful story to hear. That hugely inspired me. Of course. I thought about the 80s almost, that it during Thatcher, that it felt black and white sort of. But maybe it wasn't. What did it feel like in the 80s? Because my parents were hippies. We felt very, I mean, very out of touch with what was going on. We were the only hippies in Wolverhampton. There was not a massive hippie commune in Wolverhampton. And so we didn't have a telly for a while or a radio. So whilst all my... When I was going, still going to school, because I went to school till I was 11, whilst everyone there was listening to Duran Duran and wearing kind of neon pop socks and kind of like and scrunch-drying their hair, I was turning up with my hair in plaits, wearing a kind of knitted poncho and a pair of Wellington boots, going, the Beatles are brilliant. And I had no idea. And it seemed like all the, the images of being a grown-up were kind of Dynasty and Dallas and Princess Diana, sort of very glamorous. And, you know, seeing those women, seeing like Joan Collins as Alexis Colby Carrington and Princess Diana, I was like, oh, my God, that's what I've got to become in the next 10 years. Mm. I'm a little girl now. And when I become a woman, that's what I've got to be. I've suddenly from somewhere got to get this massive hair and this glamour and I've got to be thin and I've got to be able to get in and out of a car without showing people my knickers in a skirt. I can't do that. I genuinely, that's why when I wrote How to Be a Woman, it was all about that feeling that all the women that I saw, I just thought, I can't be that. And that was why the you know the few role models that I found, like when grunge came along when I was 15 and Courtney Love was there, the riot girl movement, suddenly girls were wearing boots and, you know, and they looked scruffy and they'd be wearing clothes from charity shops and they would be singing about the revolution and they didn't give a fuck about stuff and they were the equals of boys, they were getting bigger record deals than boys. And suddenly that was the first point where I thought, God, actually, I might actually be able to be a woman. This is, this is workable. I can't be Princess Diana, but I could be Courtney Love. Grunge was sort of our punk era wasn't it yes and and better than punk i feel i mean kind of i mean i i don't have many rules but one of them is never sit next to an ex-punk because they will bore you shitless men of a certain age going on about how amazing punk was is one of the few conversations i cannot handle and i can handle most conversations because punk didn't happen for that many people it's a great idea but it didn't happen for that many people whereas grunge was happened to everyone and to be a punk meant and you know i love revolution i love people who annoy things but be punk was so nihilistic and so based around despair grunge was the biggest thing in the world I, I think it's really important for the working classes for a movement to come along where you see working class people making money and being respected and that wasn't what was happening was for the punks but that is what happened with grunge you know i like i like i like i like a countercultural revolution but i also like to see that my people are getting paid and my people are getting respect it's kind of no good if you're kind of fomenting a revolution but you're getting thrown in jail and spat at and having your gigs closed down and you're not making any money because your record company are ripping you off You have spent some time in Sweden, right? Yes. Are you... Moving there soon, yes. You are. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do often think that, you know, if things continue to get more right-wing in this country, then I will have to go somewhere. And, you know, every time I've gone to Scandinavia, you do seem to be about 10 years ahead of us in many, many aspects. I'm thinking about feminism. Yes. Have you, like, understood how far we have got yes. in Sweden? Yes. It's still not... We're still not there. No. But we're ahead, I think. No, totally. And just things like the paternity leave laws and stuff, mm. just sort of just seeing that... 
I mean, that's one of the things, in, uh, you know, I often sort of, I do this riff about how we need to stop talking about things as being problems of feminism and problems for women. Because, you know, the big thing that we have in this country is we still believe that childcare is a problem for women. It's an issue that feminism needs to tackle. But there couldn't be anything that's more obviously the concerns of both men and women. We're talking about this, the future of our species. We're talking about little boys and little girls that were made by men and women. How could that possibly be just a woman's problem? It's, it's utterly insane. And still, culturally, we haven't got our heads around that here but you seem to be ahead of us there in Sweden on that, seeing that children are the concerns of humanity rather than just women. We do have a feminist party as well. It's this close to getting into parliament. We have an election in four days when this comes out. I'm not sure they're going to get there. What are their policies like? I mean, do they work as a political party? Yes. Yeah. But they have had some issues lately. I think perhaps they did wrong when they suggested that pornography should be illegal because that's super hard yeah and and not really practical i mean i i understand where the feminists who want to ban pornography come from but i think it's a misunderstanding of what pornography could be clearly the pornography that's around at the moment the majority of it is horrible when i was talking again to laura bates from everyday sexism we were talking about before she was saying about how the amount of um, messages she gets from girls and boys and First of all, they, I mean, all children are seeing pornography. They just it, that genie's not going to go back in the bottle. That that's where they see, and they don't even think of it as pornography. They refer to it as just sex. They don't see that it's a confection, a creation, kind of a staged thing with kind of its own rules and its own culture. They think that's what sex is. And she was talking about this awful conversation she'd had with um, a teenage boy who'd been having sex for the first time. He was 15, having sex with his girlfriend. And about five minutes into having sex, he put his hands around her neck and started to strangle her. And she started to cry and went, oh, please don't do that. And he went, oh, thank God, I thought you wanted me to do it. And they both just cried because that was what they'd seen in pornography. And she was having another conversation with a a 13-year-old girl who said, I'm never going to have sex because... Because it hurts, doesn't it? Because every woman that you see in all the pornography that she'd seen was crying and in pain when she was being fucked. The the recurrence of pain and unhappiness in pornography is awful. And, And I think that's happening because... Because it was simply there's something massive missing in most of the pornography that you see, which is a woman coming. You don't see a woman's pleasure in there at all. And we know we want to see something emotional. And when we're not seeing a woman come, because these are, these are porn actresses and that's not what they do, it's all about a man ejaculating, then the nearest emotion that we have that will give us that same kind of emotional kick when we're watching it is seeing a woman in pain instead. You know, a woman screaming or in agony or kind of, you know, that sort of rictus face of pain that you see in pornography looks quite close to an orgasm. It's as near as you're going to get, but it's not it. And in that awful, horrible confusion, and vacuum you know there's nothing really wrong with pornography that couldn't be fixed by just seeing women's pleasure in there you know if, if pornography that's the rule i'd put in i wouldn't ban it i'd just go in more than 70 percent of the pornography you produce i want to see a woman having an orgasm because really if you're making pornography what the fuck else are you gonna have in there you know there's no great scripts there's no fantastic cgi stuff there's no dragons it's just some people fucking so let's have both of the people who are fucking having some pleasure. That's what sex should be. But, I mean, it does seem extraordinary that as a species that, you know, post the sexual revolution that we're managing to screw up pornography so badly. There couldn't be anything more obvious. You know, sex is free. It's it's one of the most incredible things you can do. It's an expression of euphoria. It, it's what bonds us together as humans. It's how we create life where, you know, where it's procreative. And yet, all the sex that you see on the internet is shit. <laughs> it's just not fun. I'm all for fun, you know, kind of if something looks horrible and pleasant then I just think, you know, that's where humans have gone wrong isn't it like the patriarchy patriarchy exactly thank you 
Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I, I differ from Jermaine Greer. Jermaine Greer, the great feminist and writer of The Female Eunuch, believes that men hate women. That's her, the basis of her feminism. And I don't believe that, because I just don't believe that when boys are born, they're born hating girls. So this is something we've learned instead. And if you look at all the reasons why men might appear to hate women, it's because of the way that we've constructed society, and it's because women are unequal. Men are used to seeing women as losers. They're used to seeing them being used. So it's not that they instinctively hate them. There's nothing in male DNA that makes them hate women. It's just that they've walked around in a society where they see women constantly being screwed over and being less. And in that way that humans do, you think of people that you see being treated lesser as lesser, which is you know, why I believe in feminism as a cultural movement rather than a political movement we need political change yes but it's it's in the films that we watch it's in the games that we play it's in the songs that we sing it's in the books that we read it's in the newspaper articles that we look at that we form our idea of what we are as humans male and female and it's so much easier to change culture you know if you go for a march for feminism which is a great thing and i love marches then that march lasts for a couple of hours but culture marches forever if you've got a film and you've got or you've got a TV show or a book out there, that's someone's reading it or watching it every hour of every day and that march goes on forever. And that's why, you know, and it's so much easier to join in culturally. Again, if, particularly if you're working class, if you don't feel that you could become a politician, you know, so few people think I could be a politician and I could change the laws in this country. Most people will think, yeah, I could write a blog or a diary entry or have a conversation or write a song. It's, it's a much easier way to change the world. Do you have any idea of how many people here that call themselves uh, feminists? The last stats I looked at was when I was writing the book, which was in 20... whatever the fuck it was I wrote it, 2010, and it was something like... I think only 47% of people... 47% of women said that they were feminist. Okay. But that was because, you know, as I wrote in the book, because women didn't know what feminist meant. I mean, at that by that point, feminism had been kind of neglected for 10 years, and so the only people who were talking about feminism were sort of classic dry academics or angry campaigning women in dungarees who said that they hated men and didn't like sex. And I love all of them. You know, I, you know, they're the people that changed the world. They're the people who got me the vote. They're the people who brought this legislation in. I love an angry lesbian feminist in some dungarees. They're my girls. But then, you know, we need to... With all these things, you just need a le to expand the lexicon. You need a bigger choice. You need, you, know, you, know, you need funny feminists. You need sexy feminists. You need clever feminists. You need silly feminists, you know, to push the message properly. Mm. It's as if what I talk about, sort of like role models, kind of... It's, it's the nutsness of the, the, the very small amount of women that we see and the very small amount of things they're allowed to talk about. And when I watch MTV with my daughters... First of all, I have to explain to them, when I started watching MTV in the 1990s, most of the women that you would see on that on that te television channel were wearing clothes. It's kind of as, as weird as it might seem to you girls, most of the women you saw, they were wearing clothes. Sometimes they'd be wearing a coat, sometimes they'd be wearing a hat. And also, secondly, girls, you have to realise how weird it is that all these women are talking about sex and wanting to get fucked. Again, pop music should be about that. Of course it's going to be about sex and love. But it's the fact that it's always women, always being sexy, with no clothes on, talking about how they how much they want to get laid. And as a woman, it's as weird as if every man you saw on MTV was always thinking about farming. It's just the one topic. Every song's about farming. It's about livestock. It's about sheep. They're always on a tractor in their videos. They're always wearing, you know, a big duffel coat. They're out there cutting the crops. Every single fucking act that you see, David Guetta, Bruno Mars, Oasis, they're all singing about farming. That's how weird it is to me that all the girls that you see on MTV are all not wearing clothes and all singing about fucking. And once you realise that, once you go, oh, it's not just that women only want to sing about sex and oh, you only have sexy women that don't wear clothes, you just go, no, I'm just not being given choice at the moment. The Beyoncé VMA uh, thing, yes. where she uh, performed with very little clothing on, 
but in front of feminist. Yes. How do you react to I that? I love Beyonce. I love Beyonce so much. She's brilliant. I mean, she's got an all-female band, which in itself is just amazing. She manages herself. She comes up with all her video ideas. She's like, she's an incredible creative powerful. She takes care of business. She's a mother. She talks about feminism. She's got a sample by Chimamanda, the woman who wrote Americana and uh, uh, Under Half Yellow Moon, a quote about feminism on her album, which must have turned two million women onto feminism just in one song. So she's a brilliant feminist. For me, just as a pop fan... I, I always think that Beyonce is playing her weakest cards when she's doing her sexy slow jams. At Glastonbury, she was amazing. She came on, she played all the hits, came on with a load of fireworks, played all the up-tempo hits, and then it hit a bit of a lull because she just went into slow jams for half an hour and lay on a piano talking about how much she wanted to fuck Jay-Z. And, uh, and that was the boring bit for me. You know, I kind of... And, it, and it's weird that kind of that she feels that she needs to do that kind of because she's far more fun for me when she's singing about dancing or revolution or taking care of business. She, she bores me when she starts singing about fucking... What did your parents do for a living? My parents didn't do anything for a living. They were both on benefits. Um, okay, so yeah. my dad was disabled. He'd been in a band and then he got osteoarthritis and so he had to claim disability benefit and was in a lot of pain most of the time. My mother was constantly pregnant. So they they took us out of school when I was 10. and So all eight kids were at school and we just used to go to the library every day. They read a lot. That was the key thing that we had. They would, they, they would always be reading their kind of, you know, every conversation we had would be them throwing us books and going, read this, you'd like this, taking us to the library. We'd go to the library every day, sometimes twice a day in case someone had brought new books back that we could get and there's something brilliant about that one of the differences that I've noticed with people who've been to school and been to university is first of all you see knowledge as a game it's something to acquire that gives you power because you have to pass tests and prove and rank yourself and so your accumulation of knowledge has a point and it's goal driven and it's within quite a narrow and prescribed field there are the books you have to read and there's no you don't need to read outside that whereas if you've taught yourself particularly if you've gone to a library at the age of 12 I just went I'm going to read every book in this library and if you go and read every book in the library you find out things that you would never have found if you were going to school you would find interests you you meet people you read a book and kind of the author introduces you to another author and then you go off and read their books and that author will introduce you to other authors and uh, so you join this brilliant imaginary university in your mind in the library where you're kind of all these people are coming to you and telling you all these incredible things so I think that is a better education I kind of I, I, I love counselling children who are kind of worried about their exams and at school because all my brothers and sisters didn't go to school they were all self-taught and they all at the age of about 15 went we do want to go to university and they passed all their exams in a year by doing open university courses and went off to Cambridge and to UCL and got brilliant educations all without having gone to school for 10 years you know they, they, those 10 years where they should have you know you're told that it would take you 10 years to get to university they did it all in a year and I love telling kids nee, just doss around for five years go and have some fun go and listen to some records and have some fun and then at 15 put your head down that's all you need to do But that's fantastic. But that says something about your schooling system, perhaps. Yeah, well, maybe your schooling system is better. I mean, I mean, I, I like school. No, no, I, mean, no, I, I, I don't think so. All oh, right. Well, I, I, I mean, my, I, I sent my children to school. I gave them the choice to be home taught. And I said, I'll be honest with you, girls, you'll learn more if you just stay at home with mummy and go to the library every day. But you'll be, you'll be a bit lonely. So go to school and just have fun. So I've just sort of sold them school as being kind of this brilliant social club where you get to hang out and maybe meet the future members of the band they'll form together. But to not worry about their education, because as so long as you're reading, you're fine. Where does your confidence come from? Gin. <laughs> it's all fake it till you make it I mean you know I was 16 when I got my first book published and was coming down to London and being a journalist and so I was a working class fat weird home educated girl 
surrounded by men who were 15 and 20 years older than me, who'd all been to Oxford and Cambridge, who weren't weird and weren't fat. And I very quickly realised it was absolutely useless to be shy and insecure, which is how I felt, because it just, no one knows how to deal with that and it's just boring for people. So I just pretended to be a very confident person. In the first meeting that I ever had, I was about to walk into the room at my publishers, they were going to publish my book, and I had my hand on the door handle and I looked through the glass on the door and looked at all these grown-up executives and just thought, I don't know what to say to these people. I, I, I can't do this meeting. And then a little voice in my head went, well, just pretend to be someone who can do this meeting. And that was what I did. I just assumed, basically, I pretended to be Courtney Love. I walked into that room and just pretended to be Courtney Love. A cross between Courtney Love and Anne of Green Gables. And that's what got me through. Fantastic. And you've kept it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great knack. I mean, once you, once you pretend a little bit, after a while, it's become second nature, kind of, you just sort of go around, and it just makes things much easier. Like, it would be, it'd be so boring for you now. I'd feel like a massive drag if I was all like, oh, no, I can't talk about things. You'll have to coax some words out of me. Please, please help me through this conversation. I am weak and I must be helped. You know, that, what pain in the ass for you? It's so much easier if I just go, no, I can talk about these things and I'm confident. And I've just been pretending to be confident so long that I don't think I would know how to be unconfident anymore. That's fantastic and very inspiring also for me. Well, I hope it's making your job easier. But, I mean, I love telling that because uh, when, I, when I wrote the book, How to Be a Woman, I thought that it was mainly going to be women of my age that would read it. And it's mainly been my main fan base is young girls. It's teenage girls. Like, for this, for this book, I... Usually when you promote a book in this country, you go to literary festivals and you talk to 2,000 people and then they give you a crate of wine. And as a working class woman who likes to hustle a bit of cash, I was like, hang on, they're all paying 20 quid a ticket for this thing and I'm getting a crate of wine? Fuck that shit. So I talked to my publishers and we set up an independent tour and so I, and I did a stand-up routine, I sort of did a two-hour sort of lecture about feminism and the revolution and kind of, you know, and told funny stories. I got the money. I could do exactly what I wanted. I could go in the audience and talk to people and then afterwards I'd do a signing where I talked to all these girls and the signings would go on for like three hours the, the cues were nuts and it would all be like trembly teenage girls who were like acting as if I was One Direction or something they would scream when I came on stage they would cry when I hugged them they would make me things and give me these things and putting aside the fact that it's me so it doesn't sound egotistical but the, the, you know as, as a feminist and a writer and someone who talks about culture it thrills me to the tits that there's a 39 year old mother of two who's slightly overweight talking about Marxism and feminism that teenage girls are getting as excited about as a boy band if I had had someone like that when I was a teenage girl, someone who's approachable and funny and going, you can change things. That's all I ever want to do when I do these things is just kind of going, you can do this. Like one of the big things that I talk about in interviews is with how to be a woman. I feel the same way about that book, the format of that book, as Tim Berners-Lee was about the internet. He's the guy who invented the internet and he gave away the coding for free. He said, I give you the internet. It is, it is for you, for everybody. With the format of how to be a woman, that's such an easy book to write. Like girls, boys, anyone out there who wants to write a book, steal that format, use it. Just tell the story of your life chronologically, the structure's very easy, and then drop in your rants about what you think about things and your solutions and, like, you know, your thoughts about how you would want to change the world. And like, for instance, in India at the moment, when I'm doing interviews in India, I just wish so much, it's such a terrible place to be a girl at the moment in Pakistan and India, the gang rapes and girls being raped in villages and hung from trees. It's a terrible place to be a woman. And we need an Indian girl or a Pakistani girl to write a book called How to Be a Woman, telling her story, which would be so different from mine, but talking about all the things that she's had to face and, and telling a girl's story. You know, that's the most incredible political act that you could have at the moment for a girl to be able to tell her story in, in such a patriarchal society and make people see her as a human and talk about her 
sexuality and talk about her culture. So I want the to you know I want her how to be an Indian woman. I want her to be a gay boy. I want her to be a transgender woman. I want her to be a disabled woman. Steal that format and tell your stories, girls and boys and people who don't know if they're girls or boys. Tell your stories. Super inspiring. Thank you. No, no, no. I really it would make me nothing would be more happy. And you write it and I'll tweet it. I you know I'll, I I will sell your book for you. But anyone out there who wants to write that book, I, you know I want to read those books. I'm not sure that I will do it, but I used to be a writer. Well, not an author, but journalist and a copywriter. Copywriting is working for the devil of sorts. Yeah. You always tell someone else's story. That gets tiresome after like 10 years. Do you want to tell your story? You must have things you want to say. Everyone does. Everyone's got even if it's a tiny book, but you know, to write a little book to tell your side of the story. That's what people need to do. Again, you, yeah, the amount of stories they get told, it's always the same people who get to tell their stories. I mean, it's getting so nuts in popular culture now like in Hollywood. People are so... We've told straight white men stories so many times that we're having to do things like get them to be bitten by a radioactive spider and turn into a half-man, half-spider just to give straight white men a problem and a fucking story, mm. something to do. And it's, it's still just insane. Like, I do this huge rap about the things that you don't see. Like, for instance, blood. I do a huge thing in my stand-up routine about periods. As soon as you start talking about... Yeah, the classic thing that, we, you know, feminists are supposed to do is just go on and on about their periods. And I'm just like, well, yeah, because it's nuts. Because... I've never seen a period in a movie. I've never seen menstrual blood in a movie. Like, kind of, I've never seen that. And that, that would be seen as disgusting and gross. And whenever I say it, everyone's like, Ugh, why would you want that in a film? But I've seen millions of gallons of blood from exploding heads that have been shot and legs that have been cut off and people being tortured. You know, I've seen people's mouths being stitched onto another person's bumhole in the human centipede, you know. But I haven't seen a woman having a period. And, like, and the thing is that, that you know, that, and that's good blood. That's gentle blood. That's the blood that means we exist. That is the lifeblood of humanity. That that is, you know, where the future generations will come from. And yet that is kept secret. That is kept hidden. Body hair. Now, every woman that you see naked in the movies is, you know, has, has no pubic hair. She has no underarm hair. She has no leg hair. So it's all these things that women have to keep secret. Everything that is different to being a man is something that is seen as abnormal. So, you know, masturbation, menstruation, abortion, eating disorders, fantasy love affairs, whether you want to have children, whether you don't want to have children, those are all the, every single chapter of How to Be a Woman is something that women have to keep secret because it's not seen as normal. And everything that's different from being a, a man is not seen being, it's not normal to be a woman. And that's why writing those books, you know, every time a woman talks about what it's actually like to be a woman, you do change the world in a little way because we just need to keep saying over and over again, it's not weird to be a woman. And we're not going to change into men at some point. However much effort we make, however we, much we try and hide these things and try and assimilate and try and use your language and pretend that we don't have our female problems we're not going to turn into men we are women we will always be women we need to stop feeling so fucking weird and fucked up about it it's funny with blood that when it's uh, pictured in uh, commercials i mean menstrual blood it's always blue blue yes yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I quite like the idea. I mean, if I if I could make it blue, it'd be great. If there was a pill I could take to make it blue, I'd be totally up for it. But um, but you know, it's there. It's red. It's all over my fucking sheets, and uh, and I find it fascinating and amusing, and and that's why I, I write about it all the time. At the moment, because I realised that after the success of How to Be a Woman, that although it had been very successful, there were people who would just never read a non-fiction book about feminism mm. and how you really change things. I looked at my heroes, which are George Orwell and Charles Dickens, who started off as journalists and political campaigners. 
and they wrote non-fiction polemic. And then the way that they really got their stories across was by fictionalising it and making characters and telling stories. So that's what I'm doing now. That's the, the sitcom that we're writing the TV shows all about. The first episode's about a teenage girl getting her first period. The third episode, their grandmother dies. And in order to cope with the misery and the pain, that's when the 16-year-old discovers masturbation for the first time and wanks away the pain and proudly declares this at the funeral. Things Having that on television, having weird, fat teenage girls talking about the reality of being a teenage girl is, you know, part of my grand master plan. And I'm writing two films. We're making How to Be a Woman into a film and we're writing another one that's like a big period drama, not literary periods, uh, set in the 17th century, about this woman that we found who was an amazing cross-dressing opera singer and swordswoman. And that's how you change things, make characters and stories. That's the next step of the revolution. Have you seen Louis? What, Louis C.K.? Yeah, yes. his uh, TV show. Yes, I love him so much. Oh, a ginger Mexican. Arriba. He's so unbelievably hot. I would do Louis C.K. into the back end of next week. But I also respect him as an artist. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but somewhere along the line I just thought of him. No, well, he's brilliant. I mean, because he, he's truthful as well. And I love him when he talks about his eating disorders. You know, he'll talk about kind of like how weird he finds it that people will eat until they're full and then stop. And he just, you know, he's sort of like, you know, I just eat until I'm in pain. I stuff more in there, stuff more in there. And it's really brilliant hearing a man being kind of like candid about his eating disorder. Because eating disorders, is, it's usually a female thing. And it's seen as kind of... The, the, you know, all other addictions are quite glamorous. You know, if you drink, if you take drugs, if you're a sex addict, that's quite glamorous. But if you've got an eating disorder, it's like, ah, you lose a schlump. But of course, people with eating disorders are the only people with some kind of addiction who aren't a massive pain in the ass. You know, anyone who's spent any time with a junkie or an alcoholic knows that their way of coping with the world makes it very difficult for everybody else. Whereas the person who's chosen food as their drug is just quietly going away and eating a lot of cheese. And they're, you know, they're still carrying on their normal day and being a pleasant person. So I'm all for the food people. <laughs> Are you controversial here? No, and I very deliberately try not to be. I 90% of the effort that I make in everything that I write or do or broadcast is not being controversial because that's I've because I've observed what happens if you're a controversial pe person. If you're controversial, i.e. you're angry and you're quite uh, angry about what you're saying, People just respond to the emotion in your voice and not what you're doing. You see it all the time on Twitter. Someone sort of angrily, quite rightly, will write something about feminism. Like, this is enough of this fucking bullshit. I hate these sexist male wanker pigs. No one's listening to what you're saying. They're just they'll just hear you being angry and then they're just angry back at you. And then all it is is hurt and upset people shouting at each other and no one's actually listening to what you're saying. So I try and make sure that everything I write is gentle and inclusive and calm and funny. And I come at it from an, I try and just find an angle to come in at that isn't, I hate this or I love this. Mm. But a gentle boggle is quite good. Just coming in and going, hey, what's up with this? This is weird. So why has this started happening? Or what would happen if this continues happening? You have gained some fame in the US as well. Yes. How about being an advocate for masturbation? I mean, with the US, is that it is, does it work? It is no, it is funny. I mean, America. It's funny. I mean, doing promo all around the world, kind of different things freak different people out. Like in Sweden and in Scandinavia, no one, everyone was like, "Yeah, feminism, masturbation, that's all fine, carry on." But it, it, oddly, the question that I kept getting asked was like, "You've been quite candid about." taking drugs kind of it was they were kind of, they were like wow you're saying it's better to take ecstasy than get married i was like well yeah they found that weird nowhere else asked those questions in the catholic countries abortion's always a really huge one and you know that that's you straight out of the bag you have to talk about abortion and in many of the the first deals that we got offered in south america they said we'll take the book but only if you take the chapter about abortion out which i was very happy to say no that won't be happening you, you buy this whole book it's very important it, 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 of all the countries that those chapters need to be in it's in catholic countries 
the book's been banned in a couple of Middle Eastern countries and I get brilliant tweets from women who've smuggled it in and have reading sessions in their in their flats whilst drinking illegal booze. America, yeah, America's a lot more serious. They kind of, I guess because they don't know me as well there, so they're a bit kind of like, they, they, they presume I'm going to be controversial and they don't realise that I'm just simply going to go, because, I mean, how, how can it be controversial to talk about masturbation, really? Kind of, you know, it's free, it's easy, it's pleasant, no one gets hurt, it's very quiet and everyone's a lot more relaxed after you've done it. Although when the new book, my new book, uh, the novel opens with the heroine, she's 14 and she's masturbating, and I went on our big news show here, Newsnight, and the first question the presenter asked, just after a huge serious piece about Syria, she came over to interview me and went, "Um, so your book opens with uh, masturbation, why is that? And I went, well, you know, it's a great way to kick things off, it makes everyone relaxed. But then I realised that having said that, it made it sound like I was now about to start masturbating at the beginning of this interview in order to relax myself, and uh, I kind of lost my train of thought a bit there. (laughs) But I mean, the other thing I want to say about yeah. masturbation, the reason that yeah. I, I, I write about it constantly and want to talk about it is, particularly for teenage girls, they see sex as something that they're not in control of. Like, the recurring... Tra- I mean, I basically wrote this novel because I'd read Fifty Shades of Grey and became so infuriated that yet again we were being shown a young girl who was a virgin, who had no sexual experience and who didn't seem to know that she had any kind of sexuality until a bigger, stronger man came along and unlocked her sexuality and showed her what to be sexual was and that was just nuts every woman that I talked to you know they're all just like yeah I I knew I had sexuality at the age of 12 you know I was being sexual all over the fucking place and I was in control of it and I was in charge of it but if a generation of girls grow up thinking that they can't that sex is something that happens to them that sex only happens when someone comes to you and goes this is how you do sex we're going to lose another generation That's, that's that's a generation of girls that are open to exploitation and unhappiness and being coerced and not knowing what they want and not being in charge of their own happiness. The three things that any young teenage girl, any teenage girl should have as their hobbies are long country walks, get a bit of fresh air in your lungs, masturbation and the revolution. And if those are your three hobbies, you will not go far wrong. Mm. You talk very much about revolution. When will it actually happen? When will, I mean... Well, the revolution is always there. I mean, the thing is, it's when you start seeing revolution as a thing that's like a switch that you turn on and off and go, now we're going through a period of revolution, and then this period of revolution has stopped. The revolution is ongoing. It's just how loud it is and, and how noticeable it is. You know, things are changing all the time. Again, it's, it's that having that overview of history where you either think that, that history stops and starts or realising, you know, that there was, there was once a golden age that we need to get back to or we will have a golden age that we're coming towards. And that's not the case. Everything is changing all the time. The moment that you realise that, that everything is all always in flux and everything is always up for grabs and so that's that's the understanding of the revolution that I want to get across it's about volume you know the revolution is happening so what are you going to do to turn it up you know whose voices are you going to forefront what ideas are you going to make sure people are talking about all these ideas are still here we're not coming with any new ideas it's just going back to all these ideas that we've always had and just turning their volume up making sure that they're constantly being discussed and that's how by wearing a t-shirt with a slogan on it by talking about these things on twitter by putting a book in someone's hand with the choice of movies that you make, with the things that you buy, with the conversations that you have, with the choice of language that you have, with the people you choose to associate with, you are turning up the volume on the revolution. In a day, you can just, you know, I like to lie in bed and just go, yeah, I was about 95% revolutionary today. On days where I'm a bit more sleepy, sometimes I'll only have been about 25% revolutionary. Perhaps you could make an app. The revolution app, yeah. But it'd be good if people could score themselves. I mean, there's, I mean, it's being able to see... I mean, that's the other thing, kind of like, it's it's about being able to see 
the effect that you have. And that's, again, why the internet's so amazing. It's very easy for, you know, particularly young girls to feel invisible. You know, you're in your bedroom and no one knows you're there and you're not earning money. So as, as far as sort of capitalism in the Western world's concerned, you're not really useful yet. And you're not seeing anyone like you on television and you no one's discussing the things that you want to talk about. And that's, again, why the internet's so fantastic because you can, you know, if you're the only weird goth girl who's into architecture and marxism in your tiny town you can feel very lonely but as soon as you go on the internet and say hey i'm a goth girl who's into marxism and architecture immediately 50 other weird goth architectural freaks from around the world will go i am too and then suddenly you're a gang you know you never need to be alone kind of you know we can find each other and move together and you know that's the weird thing about you know technically i'm part of minority as a woman i'm seen as a minority as a working class woman i'm seen as a minority and you know and i'm still straight and white and able-bodied but you know i'm still seen as a minority but but if you add up all the minorities together all the people of different color all the people of different religions all the women all the gays all the disabled we are by far the majority and which is why it's so nuts that we think that straight white male culture is kind of the prevailing force they're a tiny minority they're hanging on by the skins of the you know the skin of their teeth and that's again why you know the more you talk about these things and the more you amplify them the more you realize that hang on we we are the world you know we are the majority you know what we say what we buy and what we do will change the world now you know we don't need to believe that we're being dictated to by this minority anymore because they're all out of it i love straight white guys you know look at my record collection look at the clothes i wear the people i hang out with you know i'm I'm married but you know straight white culture male culture you know you must be knackered you know you've been ruling this world for a hundred thousand years like kind of you know let the other guys take over for a bit you can have a rest put your feet up let the ladies take over for a while yeah do you have a, a ongoing discussion about quotas Yes, I believe firmly. There's a lot of uh, feminists who will argue against quotas that uh, you know a certain percent, uh, you know, fifty percent of all candidates for parliament must be female, or in the boardroom, fifty percent of you know people must be female. A lot of people don't like that idea. They think it's tokenistic. The argument is that if you make it so that fifty percent of of anything is women, then you're going to, of course, within that fifty percent, get some women who aren't very good at their jobs. You're going to get people who aren't as good. Basically, you will dilute your workplace because you've got people who aren't competent in your workplace. But of course, that's happening. Anyway, because if 90% of your workforce is male, then a proportion of them aren't going to be good at their job. No one's telling me that every yeah. fucking bloke who's got a job is brilliant at it. Of course that's not happening. So we just, it's the understanding that like, because I mean, in, in any in anywhere, whether it be parliament or a business, there's only two or three people in that business who are getting stuff done, who are clever and getting stuff done. Everybody else is just room meat, you know? They're there to fucking use the photocopier and be there at meetings. There's only two or three people who are getting work done. So once we understand that most of the people who are in any room are a bit useless, then why not have half those useless people be women and because it's important because at the moment what we're doing is we're only letting exceptional women get through women who are 50 times better than everyone else and they're there and they're on their own they're a token woman they're on their own and you can get away with that for a while you know a high-flying woman will succeed for a couple of years but constantly not being normal every day constantly being the only woman constantly having to represent 52% of the world's population in everything you do drives women crackers and if you look at all the high-profile women that they've had over the last couple of years like Sheryl Sandberg people who become CEOs of Google and Yahoo and stuff recently at the in, in America with the newspapers with the, with the Washington Post these women have these jobs for two or three years and then they either get fired or they quit and that's because they they've gone mad they can't handle it you you need to have other women around you because otherwise the analogy that I use it's like in a zoo if you've got an enclosure that's full of penguins and you put one horse in there then you know the horse might be okay for a bit but after a while it's going to start feeling really weird it'll start having really weird behavior you know it'll start going mad but you put another couple of horses in there so it's 50% horses and 50% penguins and the horses and the penguins are going to get on fine and that's what women need to do you can't be the only horse in the penguin enclosure of course you have a new bbc boss right yes 
There was like a, a headline the other day that she's a mother of three. Yeah, that was the headline. Yeah. yeah, new BBC boss is mother of three. That was extraordinary. I mean, again, with all these things, I mean, I just laugh at those things now. And the idea that you know a man would be given that job and it would, you know, father of three, boss at the BBC is nuts. And I kind of know why they're doing it. There's no point in getting angry about that because what they're saying is it's extraordinary that a, a woman who has three children has got that job. So they're not doing it for bad reasons, but it just reminds you again and again how rarely that happens. I always like to cut those out and put them on the wall with a little subtitle underneath. Going, When the revolution happens, this will not happen anymore. Can you tell me something about your uh, writing process? I always feel embarrassed talking about writing with other writers because all other writers find it quite difficult to write and will go, oh, God, the agony of the blank page. Oh, God, I just don't want to write today. I find it, it's my favourite thing to do. It's I find it so soothing. I get panic attacks quite a lot and there's only two ways that I can stop them. One... I lie with my head on my husband's lap and he strokes my head and tells me that I'm not a demon and everything's going to be okay. Or two, just opening up my laptop and writing a 2,000-word feature. On my laptop, I'm in control of the world. I can sort everything out. Everything makes sense to me. It's um, I never find it difficult having ideas. I always have a list of ideas on my laptop of things to write, column ideas and books and stuff. I've got the next five books planned, three films, another couple of TV shows, the next 30 columns. So yeah, so I'm I'm really really lucky. I feel I feel I always I always try and stop conversations with other writers quite quickly because they just want to punch me in the face. <laughs> But do you write here? Or I usually write in the garden. Yeah, I, I write where we're sitting right now. That's a hangover from when I used to smoke, and uh, so I'd smoke. I wouldn't smoke in the house, so I'd sit in the garden. Usually, and as the weather gets colder, I'll put on more and more fake leopard skin coats and hats and just sit here typing until it snows. And yeah, I just stare and look at my garden and write and then piss about on Twitter. That's kind of my my fag break is to go on Twitter and kind of post another picture of Bruce Springsteen looking really sexy. Were you always funny? Yes, in our well, in our fam, our family is funny because we just watched classic. 1950s musicals over and over again and they are really fucking funny and we read a lot of funny books and TV shows we were obsessed with sitcoms and so we'd watch them over and over again and uh, so the sitcom that I'm writing now I write with my sister and she writes with my brother another TV project so we all because if you're again if you're in a really crowded house and you're all on top of each other all day the only way that you can not punch each other repeatedly is by being funny like you kind of have to you're having to negotiate so many different personalities and so many different wants and needs that the best way around that is to just constantly be making jokes because it just keeps everybody relaxed and happy so it was it was definitely a survival technique to be funny in our house you were eight siblings right yes so is it true that when a new child is born into a family they look for a free space in their personality yes is yeah, that so with you yeah well they uh, there's, there's, there's the whole thing about there's only supposed to be four personality types so obviously okay. by the time you've had eight you've kind of duplicated a lot well again I mean that was why it was really useful that we were watching so much television and TV shows because we could just sort of choose our personality types from musicals and stuff so I was basically Toad of Toad Hall I think that was kind of my main personality thing crossed with a bit of Rick Mail but you know we had Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl as a role model Bugs Bunny was a big role model so yeah if you, if, you, if you again culture was our mother you know kind of you know we just simply chose which famous person we wanted to be and pretended to be that do you have heroes uh, i mean current heroes in uh, comedy yes god who do i think i've got i always write a list of people that i love i love eddie izzard i love him for the fact that he's a genius and he's now going to run for parliament in this country which is amazing he's putting his money where his mouth is who else do i love the writer simon rich he's a writer for the new yorker he's a brilliant writer God, who else do I love? 
just anyone who's funny. I mean, it's many of the women, really. I mean, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Melissa McCarthy, Lena Dunham. You know, these women are, you know... You're, you're doing something really soon with Lena Dunham. Yeah, I'm doing a talk with Lena Dunham on the South Bank. I'm, uh, she's got her new book coming out, and so we're going to do a talk on the South Bank. And the ticket's sold out in 12 minutes, and it's just been nuts. Like I've People I've never heard of for, like, 10 years just kind of emailing me going, please get me in on the guest list. The first, the first thing that happened was the cast of the TV show Call the Midwife, which is huge over here, all said, we want to go, and we'll come dressed as in our costumes from Call the Midwife, like 1950s nurses' outfits. So um, the front row is going to look amazing. <laughs> okay. Girls, is, has that like happened here as well? Yeah, it's not so huge here because it's um it's only shown on cable channels here. It's not the sort of phenomenon that it was in America. But I mean, every woman I know, we downloaded it illegally as soon as it started broadcasting in America, and just were texting each other at two o'clock in the morning, shaking, going, "Oh my God, a girl like us has made a show." This is, you know, it's it's so huge when you see, you know, I mean, just just the fact that she's got a bit of a belly and she'll let it flap out is a massive revolutionary thing. It's kind of you just don't see that, and she's happy with it. And when I went and interviewed her, I went down onto the set of Girls in New York last year, and I've done set visits a million times, and it's always the same thing. There's a kind of the very outside of the circle, there are kind of like stand passers-by standing there, kind of gawping at it, and then you go a bit further in, and there's the makeup ladies and the tea people. And then you get a bit further in, and there's all the kind of the technical people and the crew, and then you sort of go right to the very center of it and there's the director sitting on a chair sort of watching everything on a monitor and that's always a 50-year-old straight white guy who went to Oxford or Cambridge and this time went all the way through these layers and in the middle of it is a 24-year-old girl with a bit of a belly and really chipped nail polish just kind of tweeting on her iPhone kind of and it's just so amazing when you get to the centre of the power and find it's a girl like that and not the usual dude and she was a fucking darling and she she stopped the filming she went everybody this is Catherine Moran a very important feminist from London and I was like again putting me out of it that we live in a world where a woman running one of the most talked about shows in the world could say and here's an important feminist from London that wasn't happening 10 years ago like kind of you know it's a brilliant time to be a woman as soon as bridesmaids made a billion pounds everyone went there's money in women shit for 20 years the amount of times that I read features about sort of women can't be funny you know you get people like Martin Amis and Christopher Hitchens saying women can't be funny and now they're making billions of pounds mm. yeah they will funny your ass out of the court and that's you know it's never been a better time to be a woman the other thing about for girls i want to say is i was worrying about pornography going back to pornography because my daughter's 13 now and we're on a countdown for the day that some boy shows her his mobile phone with some horrible bit of porn on it and she comes to me and goes mummy i saw a woman crying while she was forced to have anal sex in a spit roast in the back of a car what is sex i hate this and I was worrying about this and going, oh my god, you know, all these girls, like, what are we, what are we going to do? Is what are we going to do to counteract pornography and to make our girls feel good about themselves again? And I always believe that culture will have the answer. I, you know, politically, I don't think any government can stop pornography. So it's like, what, what will culture do? What will culture do? I know, I always trust culture. Culture will save this. And then I watched girls, and I went, no, here it is. Culture has saved this because Lena Dunham is the first post-internet pornography generation, and that film is all about that. That show is all about her characters trying to have sex like you do in porn and finding how ridiculous it is how unworkable it is you know they try and have anal sex on the sofa and she falls over and just everyone starts laughing and go well that's not going to work you know kind of all those ridiculous fantasies that she's having with Adam kind of like and he's trying to get her to talk dirty and she's sort of like pretend she's a little girl with her satchel and it freaks him out it's like well there it is some culture's sorting this out culture is showing you what it's actually like to be a woman trying to have sex like you do in pornography it doesn't work it's going to be really funny so have you showed it uh, to your daughters not yet not yet yeah. they're, they're both quite um, I think uh, probably an, an effect of having a strident dirty feminist mum is that they're quite 
quiet and just sort of prudish and nice. They're both nice girls. They kind of... I went out recently for a night out and got my brother to babysit. And when I came back, he was teaching them to play poker, which is why he's such a great babysitter. And uh, the girls were really desperate not to lose. And I said, why are you so desperate not to lose? They were like, because Uncle Joe said that if we lose, we've got to read your book. And I was like, well, that's all right, isn't it? They were like, no, we don't want to read your book, particularly not the bad chapter. I went, what's the bad chapter? They went blood and just left it at that so i think reading the chapter about periods is their their worst form of torture so yeah they've not read it yet <laughs> my english isn't that good oh done usually perfect. no but i'm so rusty now as well because i haven't interviewed in english for like six months or something so oh darling god no. i mean I'm, i'm perpetually embarrassed that i can't speak any other languages it's you know you you're being so lovely coming and talking to me in my own language and oh so you, fucking lazy to learn swedish but you didn't get to that section in the library then no no left that bit it's one of the things i really want to do like in the next couple of years i want to learn foreign languages uh which one learn archery I think I'd start with French because I want. I'm very intrigued by France. I want to go and tootle around there a bit. Every time I've been there, it's so empty. There's so many bits that are like completely abandoned, and you can just sort of really properly feel history there. And the film that we're writing is set in France as well, so I want to have a gallivant around there. I'd like to learn Icelandic. I love Iceland. I'd go and live there. So, a couple of little plans. Did you know that Tolkien he learned Finnish really to be able to read there? national saga and, oh right yeah, uh, yeah that's and, fantastic and, and rip it off yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you yeah, know when you go around um, Iceland those little hobbit holes the, the, the description of that that's what they've got they've built these houses into the caves with the tiny little round doors okay. kind of all covered over and he based Mordor on that mountain range with the um with the volcanoes there we, we sort of did a huge tour of Iceland and they were showing because he went to Iceland to do research for it and um, he based so much of it on the landscape of Iceland it was um, my nerdometer kind of broke as we were driving around it was fucking brilliant did you meet Björk? I've interviewed Björk she's lovely yeah. one of the uh, I used to present a TV show when I was 17 and the first interview I did for that was with Björk and it was really weird because I'd spent the last five years at home only talking to family members and then probably the 30th conversation I'd ever had in my life was with Björk on television and uh, that's that's how weird my teenage years were <laughs> going from this weird isolated house to being on television talking to one of the most incredible women who've ever lived Does she still live in London? I think so. I've seen her around. You see her just like walking down Oxford Street wearing some incredible fucking outfit so I think she must have a flat here, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Long time now here though. Well she did that the project that she's working on has become like hugely multimedia that bibliophilia thing that she did she's now making she made a documentary with david attenborough because it's all about repeating patterns in nature and how to translate those into sound so she's creating all these new instruments and kind of and sort of took it on a tour and she did an exhibition about it as well so she's kind of it's not just albums anymore she's doing all this other stuff as well it's absolutely extraordinary the documentary she made was amazing just kind of these new sounds that she was inventing and it's so emotional it's just really really beautiful she's a genius mm. properly a genius but also really funny and lovely and kick-ass and kind of you know her seeing her singing pregnant on top of the pops was an amazing thing as a you know as a little girl like kind of you know singing birthday with a belly like that just kind of like yeah women are great yeah <laughs> I recently interviewed uh, Sasha Gray. Did you read her book, by the way? No, what's that? It's pornography. All right, yeah. Do you know who she is? No. She is a, an American ex-adult right. entertainment uh, actor. Yeah, yeah. She is now an author mm. and a traditional actor yeah. and also is into music. She's quite fascinating. Perhaps one of the most charismatic people I've met. But anyway... She and other Americans as well, they have such a hard time calling themselves feminists. Yes. What's your message? Urf. Well, 
you can say you're not a feminist. That's absolutely fine. You can say that confidently and truthfully if you didn't receive an education that was equal to boys, that when you marry, you become the property of your husband, that you're not allowed to have your own money or own property in your own name if you don't vote, if when you have children, the children belong to your husband, not you, that if you're raped, you don't think it's a crime and you don't want your assailant to be punished, that you have to give up your employment when you become married and even before then, there were only a couple of jobs that you were allowed to do, if you don't want to travel around on your own, if you've, if, you've, if you've done all those things, if, if, that's, if that's how you're living your life, then yeah, you're not a feminist. But if you are getting paid, if you are feeling equal, if you are prosecuting people for committing crimes against your body, then you are living in a world that has been created by feminism and you are living a feminist life. And you just need to learn that word. I will, I will never be stroppy or angry with anyone, but in this one occasion, bitches, go look it up in the dictionary. Like, you know, if the, you are living a feminist life. You can't avoid living a feminist life. And thank God you are. You know, and if you weren't living a feminist life, I would come and save you. And I, and I would save you on the proviso that you admitted that you were a feminist before I came and saved you from the hell of your weird medieval life that you would be living if you weren't. Thank you. Are you competitive at all? I'm competitive with the world. I wake up every day just going, yeah, let's see what we can do. But it's not to put anyone down. It's just to make the world more interesting. Like, I'm just very, I'm constantly very annoyed that I'm going to die. I, it makes me so peeved on an hourly basis that this will all end because life is incredible. When you start learning the stats about... You know, I only recently learnt, because uh, I didn't go to school and I'm an idiot, that the amount of mass in the universe is constant and has been since the Big Bang. So there's, the, so there's nothing, everything that exists now was here at the time of the Big Bang. It's just every single molecule and atom gets rearranged over and over again. So we are made up of bits of stardust that came from other planets. A bit of me could be like, would previously have been the atoms that was making up the tooth of a whale that lived two million years ago. You know, in me there's like, you know, bits of roses and the breath that Napoleon breathed in so the the universe is just a brilliant kaleidoscope that's constantly reordering itself and the fact that we're all here now and i know all the people that i know and i listen to the music that i listen to and i read the books that i read and this is the order that the universe was in when i was here blows my mind every day i went to see kate bush recently she made her comeback after 36 years and we went to the opening night and that all of that show that she did that as everybody left in tears and euphoric and ecstatic is because that's what that whole show that she's doing is about it's about you are alive the, the thing that we know is, is the most the thing that we know more than anything else we are alive but it's the thing you forget the most and every time you remember that you are alive and this is it and this is the only life you get it makes me so bloody high i haven't done drugs for 20 years but that just it makes me tingle to remember that i exist and i am alive so it's not competitiveness it's just kind of it's let's make the world as great as it can be while I'm here. You know, if there's something that I could have sorted out while I was alive so that I enjoy the world even more, I've made it a bit better, then let's do it. You know, I, I, I'm competitive about our planet being the best planet in the universe and doing whatever I can to make sure that it is and becomes even better. So, yeah, competitive in that way, yes. Tell me about your panic attacks. Why do you get them? Well, when we were kids when we were poor there was a point where it looked like we were going to get our benefits taken away and I thought it was my fault I thought I betrayed our family and that we were going to get our benefits taken away and that and I just didn't know what would I was 10 I couldn't tell my parents depicted in uh, how to be a girl yeah yeah Yeah, that's the the plot for yeah yeah, the new novel and so it was my hugest it was a terrible secret for you know a little girl to have to keep and I just thought that I'd ruined my family and that was why I started writing because I just figured at some point there'd be a knock on the door and they would take our money away so I had to earn money to support my family when that came so that was why I started writing a book that's why I wrote my first book when I was 13 and that panic every day it poisoned me you could feel in the same way that the, you know the year before estrogen and testosterone had washed through my body and turned me into a woman started started adolescence so 
again, another hormonal high tide happened, which was adrenaline. And I was poisoned with adrenaline. I was constantly panicking and shaking. And when you've had that huge influx of anxiety as a kid, it's just absolutely part of your body and your wiring. And it's why I write. You know, I always try and be positive about the bad things. And like kind of, you know, it's absolutely why I write and why I became a writer and why I started writing so young. So I, I thank it for its benefits. But it's fucking horrible. I mean, if you've never had a panic attack... When, when I read about panic attacks, I was like, oh, what? You're just like, like you're a bit worried. It's like, no, you think you're going to die. Your heart races. You flood with adrenaline. If it's really bad, then you just might, like, you know, shit yourself. You pass out. You shake. And you, you're living in absolute terror. You think that you're going to die. You know that the, you're going to go mad. Your brain's going to explode and you're flooding and shaking. And they can last days. So, so yeah, they're not nice. But I use, I use their good bit because it's a fuel. You know, it's, it, it, I use the chemical wisely. So it gives me enormous fuel to do things. So I, I, I use my anxiety like petrol. Um, But how, how often do you get them? It depends if I if, if the more stressed I am or if you know I mean if I'm an idiot and I get really hungover and then I drink some coffee then uh, then I will be quite panicky and, and anxious so I, I try to remember not to get really really drunk but I keep forgetting that it's really weird it's 39 years and I keep forgetting not to get drunk if I'm really stressed like when I was writing the book and the sitcom at the same time I was sort of sort of constantly panicky for about four months and really do me but at the moment everything's quite chilled so I haven't had one for about two months congratulations but you are not medicated. No. Well, when I had my first really big one when I was 24, it was because I'd smoked so much skunkweed out of a bong that I'd made out of a fish tank that I basically drove myself insane. And I felt too embarrassed to go to the doctor and say, hello, I'm a grown woman who's just smoked an enormous amount of skunkweed out of a homemade bong. So I never went to the doctor and just sort of thought I would have to sort it out myself. So I just control it. I control it with my mind now. When you start feeling panicky, and if anyone out there has panic attacks, just telling your brain to shut up really will work. You know, you have to learn to control your, your thoughts and your imagination because it is your imagination running away out of control and catastrophizing, catastrophizing, making things bad. So you just have to rein your imagination in and go, no, everything's fine, the world's not ending, you're not a demon, no one wants to kill you, it's absolutely fine. And that works 90% of the time. Yeah. Have you ever done an IQ test? Yes, I did it on the internet, and it turns out my IQ is 90 which makes me slightly subnormal and like I would have to go to a special school. I mean, I suspect it's probably higher than that, but I also suspect that if you're so stupid that when you do an online test that you get the question so badly wrong that it comes out as 90, you probably are quite stupid. So, <laughs> um, uh, You strike me as super intelligent, though. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> How important to you is music these days? Oh, music is... Between books and music, there's a line in the book where where the character goes, I use music as fuel and books as the maps and coordinates to get to where I want to go. So that's very much what it is. I get all my ideas from reading and from books and from literature and poetry. But music is the fuel. Like if I, you know, if I'm having a slow day working, I can just put on a record and 10 seconds later, because it's that thing again, every record that I love reminds me that I'm alive again. And I feel competitive in that way. Like, if I listen to music, I'm like, I want to write something that's as brilliant as this song. Like, if I'm listening to, like, I don't know, The Waterboys or U2 or Elbow or The Beatles or Daft Punk, and I'm just listening to how perfect it is and how absolutely in three minutes just these noises can make you feel so many emotions. And I'm like, I want to write something like that. So I want to write things that are as good as music. So, yeah, I, I sort of... That, that's the only place I feel competitive, really, trying to make writing as good as music. Of course, you are super involved in, like, Raised uh, by Wolves and in the music uh, yes yeah yeah no that's good we tried to i like doing having these little rules for things 
like so for instance in the sitcom we're trying to use only bands that were from the midlands because no one ever really talks about the bands that come from the midlands everyone's like oh yeah you know the great bands of london or liverpool or whatever or scotland but no one ever thinks about the great bands from the midlands and it's an amazing bunch like slade duran duran led zeppelin black sabbath and elo and they've all got something in common which is because the place they come from everybody thinks it's a national joke the midlands they all have to become something else they all have to become super fabulous they dress up ridiculously in top hats with mirrors all over them or they you know although they pretend they're international dandy playboys duran duran and flump around on yachts or kind of led zeppelin pretend that these kind of wild men of rock from america but if you talk to them they've got kind of quite amusing birmingham accents and like you know they just talk like that and you know elo just you know one of the most nuts bands ever so it's this the whole idea that you have to i just love that so much that basically they're kind of in order to not be ashamed of coming from the midlands they had to turn themselves into these fabulous creatures in order to be able to go out into the world and they make great music so yeah so in the sitcom we try and use any bands from the midlands and then in the film in the the film that's set in the 17th century we only want to use female artists every single track that we're going to have on the soundtrack will be by female singer-songwriters and performers because I think it'd just be amazing as a woman to sort of go and just spend an hour and a half listening to some of the greatest songs ever made and go oh god they're all by women you know it's sort of like some of the most incredible songs that have ever been written are written by women so it'd just be amazing to have them blasting out in a cinema while you're watching this sexy 16th century woman run someone through with a sword When are these uh, projects coming out? Well, hopefully we should be shooting How to Be a Woman, the film, this time next year. We've just, we've sort of just signing up with the production company now. We've got the outline written, we'll have written it by Christmas. And the other film will take longer because it's going to be a big blockbuster thing, so that'll probably be in about two years. Okay. And the uh, sitcom? Sitcom is being filmed right now. I'm going up on set next week, which will be exciting. They're filming the masturbation sequence next week, which I'm enormously looking forward to. I hope I can give them tips. And that's going to be on TV here in January next year. All right, cool. Good luck with that. Thank you. Well, I'm keeping busy because there's this novel, the How to Build a Girl, is the first of a trilogy. So there's another two books to come after this about the same characters. And I'm, the next one's called How to Be Famous. And then the one after that's called How to Change the World. And in the last one, I want to write a, a novel that is a manual for how you could read that book. And at the end of it, go, yeah, I could change the world. I know how I could form a new political party and change things. But with a lot of shagging in, obviously. How many times have you answered how much of Joanna is you? Oh, loads of times. The thing is, she's not... I mean, there's... It's like, the analogy that I'm using is it's like Little House on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder. Like, Laura Ingalls Wilder was a pioneer girl that went to America and, you know, travelled across America in a in a wagon. But if you read the letters between her and her daughter, who was her editor, most of the things that are in those books didn't actually happen to her. They're things that happened to other pioneer girls, stories that she heard, or, you know, things that she made up and stuff that she researched. So it's the same in this book. Like, the, you know, the character is a fat teenage girl who becomes a music journalist at 16 and goes down to London and shags around a lot. But the actual things that happen are, so many of them are things that have happened to friends of mine, and I was like, let's put that in the book, kind of. let's. And that was another reason why I wanted to move into fiction rather than non-fiction, because there were so many things that I thought of when I was writing How to Be a Woman. And I was like, yeah, but you can't write that because it's a memoir and you've got to tell the truth you can't make things up so the, the thrill of being able to kind of let your imagination run riot and use other people's stories and experiences in fiction is just is just lovely but the main thing about Johanna in the book is she's quite she's very confident and sort of cool she goes down there and sort of hangs out with this sort of gang of much older men and kind of she's like sort of a bit of a star a hippie on gunslinger and I was not like that when I was a teenage music journalist no, no one ever wanted to hang out with me I'd come in the office and go alright I like crowded house and then sort of go away again really quietly so she's mainly based on the, the writer Julie Burchill who was a teenage 
music journalist in the 70s in the punk era and really was the coolest girl in town, would hang out with this gang, everybody wanted to fuck her. She would just sort of, you know, just brilliant writer, slash of red lipstick, just kind of cooler than most of the bands that she interviewed. Is it true that she used amphetamine in interviews to get people to talk? Yeah, no, she did a brilliant interview on Desert Island Discs recently where she was talking about that. She was also really funny. As well. was, again, you just realise sort of how rarely you see women sort of talking about what their, their lives are actually like. There was a couple of times in the interview where the interview was being really serious with her and Julie would just go, yeah, and to be honest, I just got really pissed and I can't remember what happened next after that. And I was yeah. just like, you never, women never admit that on television. But of course, as soon as you get down the pub with them, they will tell their stories just as many times as men do. Would you like to recommend something? Oh, God, yeah, I've got always we've got a list of things. Okay, listeners, today, if you want to have a great day, then Google the writer Simon Rich and his short story, The Sellout, which was in, in The New Yorker. He's a brilliant writer, and the, the conceit of the short story is that his great-great-grandfather, who's a Jewish immigrant to New York, gets trapped in a pickle barrel for 100 years and is preserved and then is released in modern-day New York and meets his grandson, Simon Rich, who's a spoiled screenwriter who kind of has a hissy fit every time his internet goes down. And just the contrast between... Between this kind of early emigrator, New York, who's kind of sort of you know a hardworking Jewish immigrant, and his spoiled screenwriter's son, it's incredibly funny. He's such a brilliant writer. I am listening to a lot of Elbow at the moment. I love their last two albums; they're just so beautiful. And the character of John Kite in uh, How to Build a Girl is sort of, sort of partially based on Guy Garvey, who I know a bit. He's kind of in all the books that I've ever read, all the rock stars are really rubbish. They're always kind of like wearing black leather and sunglasses and like kind of like yeah, all right, kid, and they're a bit stupid and thick and venal. And that's not like all the rock stars that I knew in bands like all the ones that I know are brilliant working class boys that read a lot and can sit in the pub all day telling you brilliant stories and have a bit of brio about them and kind of want to talk about politics and so I wanted to write a, a musician like that so John Kite in the book's kind of based on Guy Garvey that'll do those two things for now thank you who would you like me to interview on Varvet International Well, Guy Garvey from Melbourne is a man with a lot of really brilliant stories. Simon Rich, I went for dinner with him last night. He's utterly charming. We had a big argument about James Joyce. He didn't like him. I found that hurtful. Bugs Bunny, I would love to hear a really good in-depth interview with Bugs Bunny. He was a massive hero of mine as a child, and I'd just be interested. I've never heard him be interviewed, so if you can track him down, do that. I'll try. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs> oh, and, God, my absolute pleasure. And hospitality. Well, you were the one who brought the pastries. I'm kind of which I'm now going to stuff my face with. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Mmm. I told you she was brilliant, didn't I? If you want to keep up with Kathleen Moran, that's Caitlin Moran in one word on Twitter. Or why don't you keep up with Varvet as well? That's Varvet at VarvetPod on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you did, you'd already know that next week's guest is American fantastic comedian Todd Barry. Varvet International is sponsored by Stutterheim.com and made by producer Christina Jorling Biro, editor Lovisa Olson, and myself, Christopher Triumph. Take care and spread the gospel. Bye for now. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 